I'm Carrie Miller. I just can't wait to talk to novelist Marlon James again. He's one of the most imaginative, original writers I've been in conversation with. James is out with the second novel in his fantastical trilogy. And I thought that while we anticipate this new conversation, you might be intrigued to listen to my 2019 interview with Marlon James. We talked about Black Leopard Red Wolf at the Fitzgerald Theater, and he described what it meant to set the series in pre-colonial Africa, immerse himself in African lore and mythology, and draw from his own childhood in Jamaica. You know, I, I think growing up in Jamaica, sometimes real and surreal gets blurred. How so? Um, uh, you know, I remember once, so my, I remember once um, this was a, a funeral. We were there for a funeral, and... Um, my my aunt wakes up and she says has this dream of this pillow flying and she doesn't know what she, she would freaked her out and i was like it's really a dream and then i looked up and there was a pillow in the air <laughs> what and i was like so so i don't know if we shared a dream or if it was actually up in the air <laughs> or somebody heard her and threw a pillow up to freak both of us out but it's, you know, it's like what Marquez says about um, the Caribbean. You know, the Caribbean, the reality in the Caribbean is crazier than the wildest fiction. That's why he always objected to the magical realist tag. He's right. like, no, this is reality. Yes, right. it did rain frogs last week. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you were reading Gabriel Garcia Marquez, what, as a kid? I was or? reading him in college. I read him by accident, meaning I stole the book. Um <laughs> Well, the, the previous class, a student accidentally left it behind. Yeah. I am seeing this book called 100 Years of Solitude, right. and it had this great cover. And I was like, well, since if nobody's using it. You know, in Jamaica, we have this saying, what stay too long, serve two masters. <laughs> <laughs> so it was there too long. It found another master. And I went home, and it completely changed my life. So thank you, whoever I stole that book from. <laughs> <laughs> How else does that saying apply did you say what stays what stays too, too long, long serves two masses like if you have food okay where out does that apply long. to yeah like if you have food out too long and you come back and it's gone <laughs> you should have had it you should have eaten it right <laughs> <laughs> so you're reading marquez mm-hmm. in college yeah you said i'm reading him accidentally because i'm doing english lit so marquez wouldn't have been on the syllabus he would have been in a, 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 the comparative literature or hispanic lit class so my guess is that the person who left it was cheating because she was supposed to read marquez in spanish so they probably snuck into english <laughs> so I, I did that student a favor i think right because you know you you know you cheat it, it reminds me of a, another jamaican proverb we said like uh, you know, you cheat a cheat, God laughs. Again? <laughs> or you steal from a thief, God laughs. Ah. So I, I think I was a force for good that day. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the commonality mm-hmm. of mythology across a lot of different cultures and right. how the idea of the quest mm-hmm. is so central yeah. to different mythologies, different myths, and the idea that the quest is about not just getting to the end and Mm -hmm. being transformed somehow, Mm -hmm. but also that process of illumination along Mm -hmm. the way. Yeah, it's it's the one thing they tend to all have in common, whether it's the Odyssey or Journey to the West, 
is that it's the journey that's really important. Exactly. The destination is great, but more often than not, the destination is a deliberate anticlimax. Um, the real lessons and the real, the real, um, the really important turn of events happens on the journey, and the really important changes happen on, on, on the journey, and the things you learn happen on, on you know in the process of getting there. And you're right, that's one thing that almost all these myths, all these legends have in common. Even uh, even if you think about the Canterbury Tales, if you think mm-hmm. about the Greek mythology... I'm, yeah, definitely with the Greek. It's, um, it's, I think you plunge into this, this kind of experience of reading mm-hmm. this mythology, thinking it really is about getting to the end, about getting to the destination. Yeah. And the fact that you never actually get there, right? Um, you know, becomes becomes important, or that you may never get there, um, or sometimes when you get there, it's not what you think. It's not what you thought it would have been. How are you? How are you thinking about that as you conceived the the beginning of this trilogy? I, you know, I mean, it helps that I already knew the ending. The kid's dead. Spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I promised these people there would be no spoilers. It's the first line in the book. <laughs> I, I, so having knowing knowing that already, I knew it would I knew it would have been a why done it as opposed to a who done it. Right. I knew it would be how did we get to this point. I, I I really admire um, that John Irving always begins his novels with oh the end. Oh my gosh, we were just talking about John yeah? Irving in the audience. Yeah, yeah. psychic. How did he you knows. Hear? You're right. He writes the last he, he, line, yeah. which is so weird. I, I I don't do that because I am, my thoughts are nowhere as together as his. Um, but I, I I do think that how did we get to this point is a fascinating story. Uh, you know, because it not just because it sends you backwards, but it, it sends you you rendering how, like uh, you know, like I tell my students, I don't want to know, I don't want to know um, why your couple is getting a divorce. I want to see how the marriage fell apart. Uh-huh. And I think it's not even the why; it's a rendering how that becomes really, really interesting and exciting. You have to allow though that things may change and go beyond what you you intend. And all my novels happen that way. Did no novel ends the way I thought it would. They didn't even have the, the middle that I thought they would. In fact, most often than not, that's not the character I wanted to tell, the story I wanted to tell. At it, what, yeah, at what point did that happen? With this, so Tracker showed up, the very first draft I wrote of this, or the very first set of pages I wrote of this, Tracker was a minor character, and I wrote 20 pages, and I was very happy, because I wrote 20, and I went, that is not what I want to write. <laughs> and, and I was, you know, it's, it's part of the process. Um, I remember my second novel, the character who ends up being the main character in the story was a woman working in a bar, mm-hmm. and I just wanted what was her story. And in following her, completely driving my entire novel off course, um, I couldn't stop following her, and I couldn't stop, you know, really digging into her story. And I remember because it was I was doing it for my MFA, and I'd have these these arguments and these sort of crises with my workshop director. I'm like, she's taking over my book, and it's like, well, you gotta, you you have to let them take over the book. I said, no, it's my book. Yeah, it's my novel. <laughs> so now I just let them run rampant and do whatever they want. This is why I've always thought that, that John Irving thing is so weird because 
there is there is a destination point that is already mm-hmm. set. And mm-hmm. so whatever is happening along the way really does have a kind of destiny to it, right? Yeah. He knows where this is going. Yeah. How how serendipitous can it be when he knows that it's yeah. all going... Yeah, go ahead. But then I think of nonfiction, though, because nonfiction, more often than not, you know the outcome, and well, yet you're still, you're still caught up in suspense reading it. Um, you know, you, you, the per- clearly the person survived. They're writing the book. Yes. But that doesn't kill the drama at all. So I do, I do think even with him sort of knowing how it ends, I think the twists and turns, I think it might be even... An extra challenge for him. How do I make this seem as if it wasn't just fatalistic? That characters actually had choices, but look at how they look at how they ended up. Maybe it is fatalistic. I don't know. I think I think we can look at any story in reverse and see the choices that led to it. If I if I start if I if I if, you know some of my students are in the audience, they may very well get this as an assignment. You know, if I give them an inevitable ending, I'll say, get me to the ending where I knew there were other options possible. What, what does that mean? Meaning that even though an ending is what it is, you know, it's choices that led to it. Sometimes it's mistakes that led to it. Sometimes it's you underestimating what the consequences of your actions would be that led to it. So I think you can sort of write a novel in reverse and still have that sense of anything could happen. I am not doing it, but <laughs> it could So do you reverse engineer a, a lot of the reading, the, the novels that you read? And, and mm. how many stand up to the standard that mm. you apply to your students? Like anything could have happened. Mm-hmm. I, you know, most of the ones that I end up finishing do. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I finish a handful of novels. I start 200. Wow. Um, oh, you're one of those people <laughs> who no, isn't afraid to let it go. Yeah, I I'll admire go. people like you. No, I you. had to, or I would go crazy. Um, or, or I just read really short books. Um, I, you know, I, like I read two really great novels in a row recently. Uh, My Sister the Serial Killer. Ah. And Boyanka Braithwaite. Yeah. So the, good. Yeah, and The Perfect Nanny. Oh, I haven't read that yet. The, uh, the, the problem with The Perfect Nanny is called Lullaby in Europe. And the problem with The Perfect Nanny is the type of reader who reads a book called The Perfect Nanny, picks it up, <laughs> and nobody recovers from the first paragraph. Really? Oh, it's, wow. it's, yeah, uh, it's interesting hearing people, I couldn't get past the first page. I'm like, yeah. Okay, so let's talk <laughs> about my sister, the serial killer, because yes. this is fun. So if you reverse engineer mm-hmm. that novel, how many really different ways could that have gone? For me, it feels mm-hmm. like it kind of had to go where it was, I, where it went. I yeah. won't spoil it for you guys, but you yeah. should read the novel. I, the thing is, though, I still thought, I still felt up to the end that the sister had choices. And a couple of times I act, if, if it had ended in where she actually acted on one of those, I'd have still believed it. Um, I think, funny enough, the, the fatalism in that novel is actually the, the sisters. It's not the novels. It's yeah. the sisters. Right. And, and that's a choice. You know, she could easily have said, enough is enough, or this one backfired, or 
I actually, I don't want to spoil it too much because you really should read the book. Yeah. After you buy mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they did. They're all uh, sitting there with a copy on their laps. But I, I, or I wouldn't have liked it. I wouldn't have liked it. I, 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 that's one of the things I must be convinced of when I read a novel, that these are human beings and they had choices and they had agency. And, and yeah, you can be caught up in a moment and you can be caught up in things that you aren't, aren't beyond your control. But I still want to know that you have the capacity for change, even if you don't, or even if you change for the worse. Uh-huh. Well, a few minutes ago, I think you said, this is the challenge I give to my students mm-hmm. when writing, even though I'm not doing that. Mm-hmm. Didn't you say that? I don't you're, know, but, you're I, do not... a, but I, I have them play by a lot of rules I break. Okay, so yeah. why do you break that rule a lot? No, because I, I, I still, for me... I know I'm in a zone when these characters become people. And they start to do things people do that we don't expect. Such as? Such as surprise us. Or but such specifically as? as. Um, well, I, I don't know necessarily specifically what. I just think the characters become real when they do things like dip, disappoint us. So when characters surprise us, when characters disappoint us, to me, that's when they start being real. Because I don't think, well, I certainly don't go in the world expecting my friends to disappoint me. But they do. But they do. And you um, know who you are. <laughs> but I don't, I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't go in with that view of my friends, so it always hits me off guard. But I think when characters become people, they have to start doing those things, like surprise you and disappoint you. I'm disappointed in my characters all the time. Are you? Oh, yeah, I expect better. <laughs> Specifically, how are your characters disappointing you? Because <laughs> they're so real. They should be always virtuous, and they should do what I want. Ah, but <clears throat> virtuousness is often really boring. It is really boring. Disappointment is a... interesting, right? Isn't Disapp- that what you're yeah, saying? It is interesting. It is interesting um, writing characters who do disappointing or terrible things to other to other people. And, um, but I'm also a big believer when you write those things that there should be consequences and it, should be, it shouldn't just be something that just happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I like writing how characters deal with the consequences of their actions. How do, you, how do you make sure that the consequences don't feel kind of pro forma, expected? Mm-hmm. Because that's kind of dull too. Yeah, but even that has to be kind of disappointing, I think. I think the consequences. Um, yeah, because I think meaning meaning what though? Meaning that when characters, for example, get way too convenient at comeuppance, mm-hmm. um, you know, most of the people who have done me wrong are living quite fine lives, <laughs> and that karma I'm waiting on just not doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I have to remember that with with my characters. I think I I. I remember watching um, the, one, of the, one of the seasons of Game of Thrones mm. and um, where one of the Stark sisters finally gets her revenge on mm-hmm. this guy who brutalized her. And it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Right. But I thought, this is a little too much wish fulfillment. Like, revenge doesn't really work that way. You know, usually, even if you get revenge, it's kind of hollow. That's a good point. Yeah. Because really, the character growth... Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is, what are you doing with the fact that you have not been vindicated, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Isn't that where the, where the interest is yeah. in the Yeah, and that even when you are vindicated, it's kind of hollow. Right. It's kind of, um, 
it's not quite the reward you were expecting. Right. And I think, and I, I, those are the things I actually like writing. It's things I hate experiencing, but I do like writing them. Sometimes I think um, we've become a reading public that requires the kind of formulaic mm-hmm. comeuppance. You know what I mean? Yeah. Ambivalence uh, about that is mm-hmm. just like kind of in our media, just in, in the kind of the environment that yeah. we live in, right? Yeah. Ambivalence is uncomfortable. It is. And I think we we are reassured when people get their just desserts. Right. Um, but they I, don't often get they that. They don't often. I remember being horrified by the ending of Chinatown. I was like, really? This is how it's going to end? <laughs> He gets another one. <laughs> and and though I write endings like that. Um, it's <laughs> got one laugh. <laughs> That's my friend. Um, and you write yeah. endings like that because? Well, I, I don't know. For lots of reasons. One, yeah, it's sometimes a wink at a reader. But I also think it's sometimes that life just doesn't work that way. And I think that kind of sort of wish fulfillment revenge thing, it's, it's, it's an, it's an, it's, it, it can be a pleasure, but there's some part of it where you're going to realize that this is not quite how life works. And this is not quite the things we have to deal with. And even when that happens, um, it's not always what, you know, what it was meant to be because ultimately it's still, it's still a pretty hollow, dark thing, revenge. You went back to read Beowulf, is that right, mm-hmm. in preparation for this? Mm-hmm. I really, I remember, I have clear memories of being taught Beowulf mm-hmm. in college and um, by a teacher who declaimed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. How did you, how, how did you first read it or... Experience. Well, it? I, I, I always Beowulf, Beowulf is one of those um, stories I've always, always experienced on my own. I never read it in a class. Really. And the first time I read Beowulf was actually a comic. It was actually a graphic novel. It's actually oh, really, wow. really good. <laughs> I'm getting all these little claps today. Um, yeah, and um, and then I read Seamus Heaney's um, translation, and then I read Tolkien's. I'm not going to say who's I like more. Come on, um, say. Okay, I like I do like Heaney's more. Why? Um, because I think that all the ancient epics do stand as great poetry, and I can tell when an epic hasn't been translated by a poet yet. Oh wow! How? Um, just the the the, the uh, misunderstanding of rhythm and and prosody, and understanding that these things were were to be spoken aloud, and if you and if you're going to speak aloud, there has to be music. Like there's a new translation. It's not new anymore. It was translated at least 15 years ago of the Torah, and um, there's a line in the Bible that says, "From the dust came Adam," and he tra- he took that he changed it and put, "From the hummus came the human," which completely changed everything because mm-hmm. it's it's he he it's Robert Alter I think he remembers that these old stories are written to be spoken. And that's something I thought of when I was writing this book, that it has to be, it has to, you have to be able to read it aloud, because uh, that's how all the ancient stories were. How well do you know the Bible? I know it pretty well. Do you? Yeah. Why? Because I was a Christian for a few years. <laughs> okay, more, more than a few. But, um, 
but I was raised Christian, yeah. Lutheran. I don't know the Bible. I couldn't even I mm-hmm. I couldn't even spew out a verse yeah, like yeah, you but, just did. But I joined church when I was like twenty eight because ah, I was running away from the gay. Right. And and it was a great place to run away from the gay. Me and all the other gay guys in church. <laughs> you know? Talking. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, so I got to know it very well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you <laughs> and you memorized, I mean, was part of that experience of church and mm-hmm. coming to church as an adult, mm-hmm. really understanding and memorizing the poetry yeah, of the Bible? And, and you do it because you think you're making up for lost time. Because if you didn't grow up in church, um, and like me, you're trying to escape the gay, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was sucking up everything. I was at, I was at Sunday service. I was at Monday Bible study. I was at Wednesday church. I was at Thursday prayer group. I was at Friday teens meeting. I'm not a teen, um, so this that was kind of creepy. Really? Uh, wow. This is at twenty. This was years twenty old. till I think I finished my second, my first novel. So I was there for a while. So what brought you to church? Mm-hmm. You said to escape the gay. Yeah, it wasn't a. It was an identity crisis, as in, um, how am I go? Yeah, you know. For I'm trying to think of all the reasons why, but mostly I just didn't want to be a gay man, mm-hmm. and and I've always heard Jesus solves all problems. <laughs> and I remember I went and got the whole "Are you gay? No way" pamphlet. Were they giving that out at the church? No, I had to get it mail order. Ah. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and it was it shipped in a little paper bag, and it was oh like, gosh, well, are who, you gay? Who, who creates that kind well, of Well, because but it's a huge thing. Um, Jared Cardinley talks about it in Boy Erased, um, the 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 ex gay movement and Exodus mm-hmm. Ministries, which is still pretty prominent yes. in Jamaica. And um, and that yeah, it's still a lot of those things are still going strong because you're you know especially the way I was raised. I mean, I always thought there is no way I'm going to keep my family and be myself, so let's get rid of myself. And you know, in in church, you can sort of throw yourself in it. It was just it was fascinating being around the other church gays. You know um, what? What was it like? It was weird. Like uh, one person asked, so "How are you?" And he'd be like, um, "I had just a smashing, wonderful, intimate time in the Lord." <laughs> and I'd go to my pastor, and I go, "You know, I, I think Tim loves Jesus." <laughs> and he's like, "We all need to love the Lord, my child." I'm like, no, I think he loves <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so, did you feel like? That you were going to be converted through the church? Or did you think this will be so subsuming, mm -hmm. so consuming, this Mm -hmm. experience with the church, that I will no longer have these urges Mm -hmm. or desires? That is exactly what they say. You sure you weren't in church? Do they say that? That's exactly how they put it. Because they all go, if you go to become straight, you will never succeed. But if you search for the love that passes all love, then all those little things. It's like trickle-down economics. Those little things. Okay, that's an unfortunate choice of image. Um, but, <laughs> but it will just eventually sort, it will eventually sort itself out. 
It was really strange. Did you believe that going, going in? I absolutely believed it. You I, did? Well, I wanted to believe it. And I think that's it. And I remember, funny enough, I was, when I did, I did the math on this stage, I was saying, it's not even that I believed it, it's that I wanted to believe it so badly. And I think wanting to believe can be almost as strong as belief. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was it. I just worked so hard um, to believe it. So at what point... I think you said you were involved with the church for what six, seven More years? Than that. Yeah. More than that? Yeah, we were like six, so seven. So, at what point did you have to say it's not working? Well, what point? I, you know, there is. I think there's a cycle you go on, which is like temptation, sin, um, confession, repentance, purity, temptation, sin, confession, blah blah blah. <laughs> And I kept trying to get rid of all those things, which is funny. I wasn't really sinning, but I, that's a lie. Um, <laughs> I kept trying to get rid of all these parts of the cycle, and the cycle couldn't stop. And one day I went, what if I get rid of church? And that worked wonderfully. It's just funny, because there's so much about me that's still church. It's still, you know, um, like I tell people, you know, I don't really, I don't really, I'd rather have joy than happiness, which is so church. Um, you know, people are Roman who said, I'm worried about this. I'm like, don't worry. Worrying is sinful meditation. And I go, oh yeah, from church. Wow. But it's, I still believe it's it. deep, right? I still believe it. I still don't believe in worry. I actually think worrying is a sin. Did you have to go to your pastor and tell him that you'd reached this point where what you'd come to the church for was not mm. going to happen and you were going to have to leave the community? Um, no, because he had a stroke. That's not funny. Okay, it's a little funny. Did, um, was there anybody that you had to I, tell in that church faith not really. community? I kind of, I kind of um, took French leave of the church. I think which, they also is, talk, which is leave without saying goodbye. Um, so I kind of took French leave of the church. Um, but I was also drifting away because of the novel I wrote. And I knew the first novel, which is about all sorts of religious crises and dysfunctional religion, wouldn't have gone very well. And I knew that, um, that the, being a writer and writing about these things was what I wanted to do. So did it mean that the experience of drifting away mm-hmm. gave rise to having to create this novel about it? Or was in the process of creating the novel, mm-hmm. you really identified... I think How it's the process of creating away. the novel that's, that started the drift. Really? Yeah. It was a, it was a process of writing that novel and, and the process of, of, of actually becoming a writer that um, caused it. Cause I, because I, if you're going to become a novelist, if you're going to be a writer, and it doesn't matter the genre, easy answers aren't going to get you very far. And the church I was in was all about easy answers. So I knew this is something was already, a schism was already, already happening because I was drawing myself to way more complicated things than a line or an aphorism can answer. And I knew that there was, there was just, it was just, it, we were gonna, it was gonna come to a head at some point. And yeah. I, yeah, and I also knew that the trajectory that I was going on where, um, you know, you're, you're a devout Christian, you devote your life to it. People go, how come he doesn't have a wife? You go, well, he's all about Jesus. 
you know, and, and I become like my other friends were like, you know, I'm just waiting for the Lord to shine the light of a wife in my life. <laughs> you know, I have to imagine, though, that in drifting away, mm-hmm. you were leaving big holes in your life. I mean, you mm-hmm. were there on Wednesdays and Sundays, and this mm. was, you were deeply embedded in this community. Yeah, I mean, abso- How do you adjust to that? You don't. Um, it's It's... I had a pretty fortunate series of events. Uh, my book came out. I left the church. I sold my other book. Um, I got this job at McAllister to come for a year. I've been here a little more than a year. Um, and I just a series of events, events really sort of swept me up. Um, but even so, coming there, you're right. There are all these voids um, in, in you know in my life. Um, you can fill so much with work. And with writing, that's one of the reasons why I used to like, get these serious depressions when I was finished with a book. Because I'd be, but now I have to live life, and I don't do that very well. <laughs> what do I do? I know, I'll write another book. You uh, said used to. That, that doesn't happen no, anymore? No, well, no, because, you know, I have friends now and significant others. and Well, one, not others. <laughs> and, uh, I was uh, about to pounce on that. No, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I, 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 I think a richer and more abundant life. Um, and there's more to, there's certainly more to writing than writing. It certainly helps the writing if there's more to writing than, you know, than writing. You know, it kind of brings us back to where we started when I was telling that story about feeling like I'd kind of slipped into a, a story or a myth. I mean, do you, you must have had that experience and maybe some of that reluctance of the book is over now I'm back to real life mm-hmm. is um, moving back and forth in that dimension mm-hmm. and feeling like this side of the dimension is never going to be as satisfying or exhilarating as that side of mm-hmm. the dimension. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I don't know if I feel that way though. Um, because the, the, I look for different things in each. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I don't think my characters in my books are the type of people who will find just an evening drinking wine with a friend satisfying. They're like, who are we going to kill today? <laughs> what are we going to hunt? <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> Whereas I, you know, I, I don't have those kind of habits. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I think I, I live for and appreciate um, different things. I um, also, you know, the worlds I write are, are for me full of wonder, but also full of danger. Hmm. Like I've never written a place where I'd rather be. Wow. Um, even though I, I quite like the worlds that I write, I'm like, no, I don't live there. I, I, I can barely survive four hours without electricity. I was like, <laughs> what do you mean no internet? Like, no. <laughs> Why do you think danger is such an essential part of the worlds that you're writing? I think because it's, it's an essential part of every world. I mean, if you, you know, even Aristotle's poetics is basically saying trouble is interesting. I think, for me, I, I still get a thrill from seeing how do people get themselves out of the messes they're in. And, I, and it's something I, I, I still like writing. It's something I like figuring out. And it's something I like reading. I think we just... We, I don't know. I think we just love seeing it. We like seeing how people deal and get out of, of, of trouble. 
And um, as a writer, you know, I still, I still, you know, I still write in a way. I write one of the ways in which I write is to sort of put myself in the place of the stories I always liked, and I always like adventures and whodunits and journeys and mysteries and and all these things that people have to sort of work themselves out of. I I, I hear that, but I also recognize, having read your novels, that. It's more than danger. There's a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, I think we were talking about this, unresolved violence. Mm-hmm. Because violence is unresolved. I mean, I have, you know, there a few things I'd say about, about you know, about violence. Um, because I do have that, that reputation. I think, for one, there is a difference between, between preponderance and resonance. I think um, I usually give this totally wacko example of Led Zeppelin records, where, like you know, a Led Zeppelin album. When we think of Led Zeppelin, we think of the gold standard of hard rock, uh-huh. and yet every Led Zeppelin album is sixty percent acoustic. So it's really just a folk rock album with some loud moments. <laughs> wow! But the 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 loud tracks on that album rebound and echo and resonate so loudly and so completely that the whole album feels like it's that way. And I think when I write violence, violence has to reverberate. And also the thing I, I find really interesting and, 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 and interesting in a bad way with a lot of how particular cinematic violence works is that there's all this violence where there's no suffering. People suffer from that. And I, and I, and I, I think for me at least... If I'm going to be, if I'm going to write about things like that, it has to be unflinching, just in the sense that violence comes with suffering, violence has consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily that there is a preponderance, but I do believe it should resonate. Um, yeah. You know, um, I was thinking about your description of the Led Zeppelin albums, and I was mm-hmm. thinking those moments of quiet mm-hmm. and the spaces, I mean, when I listen to Led Zeppelin, I also feel like I'm listening to what's happening in some of the spaces mm-hmm, between mm-hmm. the notes. Yeah. And they're ever sharper because we've hit the... You're right, because of the loudness, because mm-hmm. of the cacophony of yeah. the 40% of... Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the same way in reading your novel. I, I hope so. I think th- this is how you know... For me, at least, when a writer has crossed the line, it's not just with violence, it's also with sex and all these things, if you start to feel numb. If it continues to horrify you, that's kind of, it's bad, but it's still still within the realm of, of, this is a, a, a... this is an experience that we're, we're, we're going through or we're experiencing. If it gets to the point where it's numb, then it has slid into pornography. And it can have a pornography of violence. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's and I think that's the difference. If 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 we're starting to get numb, then I think there's too much, or it went too far, or it's it's um, of a certain kind. How do you preserve your own sensibility on that? Oh, I have no sense. Um, <laughs> how do I? You know, I have to for scenes like that, for really really intense scenes, and, and I've written quite a few of those. I have to enter like a journalist. And I look at myself as a journalist for imagined people. Um, I have to, because otherwise I'm not going to get the full story. 
or I'm going to get a skewed story or I'm going to let my biases get in the way or even my prejudices mm-hmm. um, to get in the way. So I have to enter the scene like a reporter and, and, and say as clearly and as, as definitive, definitively as possible what happened. But that's the only way, because um, I remember writing my second novel, which is about slavery, and at some, a couple of points, I, you know, I got so emotionally involved in it, um, because it, why wouldn't I? It's, it's a horrendous story, and, um, but it was hurting the book, because um, one, I couldn't write these intense scenes with clarity, two, I couldn't recognize the... the the um, I'm going to say three dimensionality, although that's not a word, of the white characters. It'd be like slave good, master bad, and it's way more complicated than that. And I had to go back and recognize the complicatedness even in despicable people. And the only way I was going to do that is to sort of put on my sort of reporter's cap and go in and get the story. And that is how, for me, I've navigated those those spaces. You trust your sensibility on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I've, you know, very, very little but some sort of journalist training. I um, mean, I did spend, also spend time in the newspaper and all of that. But I also just think that... Um, for me, most of my novels are told in first person. Most of my novels are driven by voice. So even, in the, even if it's not a scene as intense, I still have to pull, pull, you know, step back and let the character mm-hmm. um, tell the story and let the character tell the story how they want to tell it. You said uh, a while ago that um, the way you write is meant to be read aloud. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask you to read a an excerpt ah, from this. But, but I am curious about um, the process of the reading aloud. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's, how, does that, how does that work in the midst of the writing? Um, sometimes I'll stop and read it out aloud. I think there are things your ears, there are things that will miss your eyes that your ears will catch. And, um, and I always advise people to read the work alone. Or if you're a real glutton for punishment, have somebody read it to you. Right. Does anybody do that with no. your work? <laughs> Why? You know, I mean, my skin is only that thick. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it's, it's even, even, I mean, not every novel or every story I've written, I've thought, this must be like an oral epic. But I do believe that novels should have volume. And I'm really impressed by novels that have volume control, that you can tell, you know, what, what, is, what is a secret being whispered to you and what is something that's being proclaimed. It's like reading Tony Morrison's Song of Solomon. You know the beginning is being proclaimed, because uh, everybody must look at this guy who's standing on the top of that hospital like he's going to jump or fly. It's like, a, it's like a village, it's like a town crier. But then when she gets into these secret family histories, it's almost a whisper. And I've always been, I've always envied Toni Morrison for that, actually. More than anything else, her volume control. But I think novels should have that. I also think novels should smell. You know, they should smell and they should taste. They should, they, they should have all those sensory elements. You, you do have a lot of sensual description, but that mm. is so interesting about the volume control. Mm-hmm. You've made me wonder as I'm 
reading with whatever voice is in my head, whether I am just naturally following, falling into those mm-hmm. peaks and valleys of, mm-hmm. of volume. I think you are with a good book, though. I think, I think um, you know, a novel, a novel like, say, Jane Eyre, which uh, is kind of uh, being whispered to one you. One of my favorite, yeah. It yes. is. She's, she's, she, clearly, you're somebody she's taken into her confidence. Right. And that affects how you read it. Long before you get to the reader I married in. Right. Part. And compare that to, say, Pride and Prejudice, where these are some big statements Jane Austen is making. And, you know, that is a novel that you're reading to the crowd. It's a truth universally acknowledged. Um, and I think both of, those, both of those writers are masters of volume. You're listening to a conversation at the Fitzgerald Theater with writer Marlon James. His new novel is Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and I'm Carrie Miller. Um, we mentioned that there is a sensuality mm-hmm. to the writing. There's also some great sexy scenes mm-hmm. and sexiness to the novel, and I think you've said that that is a reflection of the bodiness that you'll mm-hmm. find in a lot of mythology, right? Yeah, and you'll find in a lot of, of African mythology, certainly in the Greek. Yeah. Um, God, I mean, I don't know how I they know. ever got around to doing anything in Greek mythology. <laughs> but you also find it, it's, it's, it, but it's one of the things that also survived the slave ships here. If you listen to the blues, the blues is incredibly raunchy. As it should be. I mean, back in the early 20th century, you either sang in church or you sang the blues. So that kind of sexual frankness and that even a, even a sexual fluidity, you're still seeing the blues. I mean, a lot of those singers, Marion and Bessie Smith, were singing about women. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that sensuality, to, you know, for me came from a lot of these African stories. And that was, a, that was, a, that was actually quite self-affirming for me. How so? Because I have, you know, I've been, I haven't been, I haven't been to Nigeria in a few years. But even when I was there, evangelical Christianity was really taking off, and there is this huge homophobia in countries like Uganda and, and, yeah. and so on. And it's easy to sort of drink the Kool Aid about how these things happen. And when I was doing the research, and I came across things like the Shoga men, who everybody knew were gay because they were the only men trusted with brides to be. So I know I can have you guard my daughter because we and I know, both know nothing is going to happen. I can't bring my son here, but the daughter is fine. <laughs> so clearly they knew. Um, I remember when, when Chimamanda Adichie came to Makers and Queen, I interviewed her. And she was talking about how everybody knew about the two aunts at, at the end of the road. You know, everybody knew about the two uncles, um, who everybody knows are not uncles. And you knew that... Even if these people were never invited to the party, everybody knew that were they to leave, the, the, the street, the village, the town would fall apart. Really? Yeah. yeah. So there is always a space for that. There's always a space for fluidity. A lot of, the, a lot of these traditions, you are born basically both sexes. Many that also leads to horrendous things like circumcision. Um, but you find with, that again in Greek mythology. Yeah, and yeah. there is all of that. There is, um, I mean, plural pronouns. I'm telling people, welcome to the party. We were there 4,000 years ago. <laughs> um, but it was just, as a queer black person, it was really reaffirming. It was really, it was a joy to read that. Is it a joy to write those kinds of sex scenes? Some writers are pretty uncomfortable with Well, that. sex needs to be sexy. I think. I, what makes sex sexy in literature? 
I know what makes it non-sexy. What? Okay, what makes it non-sexy? Well, one of, funny enough, one of the things that makes sex scenes non-sexy is classism. It's, um, it's, 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 it's like when you watch even independent cinema, um, if, if the characters are, are working class, it's always super quick. Nobody's into it. They're really into the cigarette more. <laughs> it's just sort of steeped and it's as coldly compulsive. And you'd never think that a huge portion of this world may actually enjoy um, sex. It's, you know, bricklayers get orgasms too. Um, it's, There's it's, a sentence I didn't think was going to happen in this conversation. But it's, it's, but it's, it's, but, 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 but it took me a while to realize just how classist the bad sex scene is. Because too often we, we only see intimacy between people who have the leisure time. So people who are working two jobs don't have intimacy. Where did that come from? <laughs> And I think the first thing in writing sex scenes is recognizing everybody as intimacy. And most people, for the part, kind of enjoy what they're doing. Um, so it's, it's, that's why I think if violence should be violence, sex should be sexy. Um, and, um, and it should be... To me, again, it's, I think literary fiction authors are so afraid of overwriting. Just in general yes. or sex? Scenes? Sex. I think yeah. they're afraid of overwriting. Overwriting sex scenes. Why? Yeah. Or, or they feel they, um, they might slip into sentimentality or pornography. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to write those scenes, you have to risk both of those. But I also think you just, again, become a reporter. Okay, the world's kinkiest reporter. But <laughs> become a reporter and, and, and report a scene. What ha- say what happens um, and get out. It's... Um, to me, it's the same principle in writing a sunset. I always tell my students, a sunset doesn't need your help. It's just say what it is. It's, it's quite gorgeous on its own. And I think with, with any form of intimacy, it's not just sex. People have problems writing romance. Um, and, and, and just write a, write a love affair. You know, we yeah. were downstairs we were talking about how much Marlon loves Jackie Collins' <sighs> novels and how we, how we both came to read Jackie oh, Collins. You're shocked. Um, my mother read Jackie Collins, and so I read Jackie Collins, because I read whatever she read, and my she didn't know read, that. My mother read Your Day in Jesus. <laughs> She's not reading that. <laughs> right. But your housekeeper read Jackie Collins, Housekeeper read Jackie Collins. And yeah, I remember, I remember reading Hollywood Wives, and it was the first novel I read in one sitting. <laughs> and I think I was 13... And I finished it, and I thought, I'm an adult now. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie Collins knew how to write sex scenes. Oh, my God, yes. Right? But but even I went, God, is everybody in this book going to have sex? (laughs) Really? Yeah, but it's it's, um, it's one of the reasons why I, I, you know, I've never understood. This is one of the reasons I just don't get John Snobbery. Because that's not how I grew up. I grew up reading whatever book I could find, whatever people gave me, whatever I could afford, whatever I could steal. Okay, borrow and not return. Mm. Um, and uh, whatever book that was, it was all good. I'm like, okay, this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to read next. And 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 you know, and Jackie Collins um, was part of that. I mean, I quite enjoyed Harold Robbins. I was going to say, I wondered if you read Harold. The Carpetbaggers. Oh my God! How about the Betsy? Yes. Oh my gosh, was that sexy or what? I remember. And what is it? I read it. Um, all of was it Jeffrey Archer's book, Cain and Abel? Yeah. Anything that became a miniseries, I probably read the book. <laughs> Thank God for that housekeeper. Oh my God! I mean, think about how limited your 
experience would have been. I'm telling you, she read her. everything. I even even these really ridiculous right wing um, novels like The Executioner. It was The Executioner, The Penetrator. I don't know how that happened. The Destroyer, and one called The Butler. And I read all of that. I read pretty much everything. I'm amazed I'm not a right-wing maniac. <laughs> <laughs> so but. do you still read um, prodigiously like that? Do you let I your... I try. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going good so far that I've read like four novels this year. Usually I'd have gone through four novels in a month. But do you read outside of what you think is good for you? I mean, well, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. I, for me, to me, I think it's all good for me, honestly. Um, I'm, for example, I'm still a devoted reader of comics. Um, the, the, <laughs> it's funny, I was, uh, I was on Seth Meyers uh, last week or the week before, and I think people think when the credits roll and we're moving and talk, we're just moving our lips. He's like, have you read Hellboy in Hell yet? I'm like, oh my God, dude, it's a comic I've been waiting my life for. And he, he told me to read Black Hammer. I was telling him he needs to, then we, and we both talk about, isn't it great that Saga will never be filmed? We had a total geek conversation. So, but I still read that. I still read, um, I still read, you know, I, I read comics. If, if, uh, trust me, if, if Jackie Collins is coming to a book, I'm going to read it. I actually read Jodie Picoult. Do you? I do. She was shocked that I read her. I met her. And I was like, oh, my God, let's talk about when you did such and such <laughs> in My Sister's Keeper. And she was like, you read that? I'm like, what am I going to read? <laughs> it's like, you can't read Tolstoy every day. <laughs> That's right. Uh, um, but, yeah, I just, you know, I... I, I, I remember I threw out a challenge um, a, few, a few years ago. I said, you know, you guys can knock chiclet all you want. It's the only genre where women work. Wow. Good point. Because I don't know how people eat in these literary fiction novels. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, when exactly did you earn the money for this piece? <laughs> right. I have bought Chardonnay. It's not cheap. <laughs> right. So. Um, I think anybody who's been following the the success of this, I hope, has read the news about Michael B. Jordan being attached to the yeah. movie. I love saying Killmonger bought the book. I, I mean, <laughs> wow. How'd you get the news on that? Well, I mean, we've been talking for a while, actually. And um, before we even talked about deals, we just wanted to see if we liked each other. Oh. And if we were on the same page. And we really were. Do you like him? I quite like him. And, um, and I really did like Creed. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, he's been in so many movies I like. Fruitvale Station, Black Panther, of course. Right. And um, just the whole, you know, the, 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 the mission that him and his partners have about telling stories that aren't always told. And um, like one of the things we said, I said, you know, one of the issues I have when we talk about black people in the diaspora is that ground zero is always slavery. And I wrote, and I wrote a novel on slavery, and I am tired of it. Um, that there is, there is a pre-story, there is a pre-history, and there are all these great things that are that are out there, and I think can be the source of really fantastic cinema. And we were just talking about that for for a while, and then we talked about business. But I was very, I was very impressed with him. I was very impressed with how 
smart he was and how well read he was and how much he how much he seemed to be really really into the book he's one of those people who i don't know there was these mysterious leaks for this book that kept happening and i kept going i don't know what version of the book you have but i don't think that character is in there anymore (laughs) where does something like that come from I have no idea. I it's was not a, you planting no, little, I was you know, a, red I, herrings out there and they just to wind that. us all up. I'm going to do that. Yeah. I, I was at a party and somebody from FX came over and like, oh my God, I love your book so much. And I think we're going to make an offer. And I was like, I'm, this is what I'm going to do for you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody you just told me that you're reading a stolen copy of my book <laughs> and you won't get fired. <laughs> so... <laughs> So what will that experience be like? How much, how much uh, influence um, will you have on what happens in the actual I, movie making? You know, I don't know yet. Um, usually they always float the idea of, of the, the novelist writing a screenplay. I think there are very few novelists who can write a screenplay. Why? And I'm not convinced I'm one of them. Why? Um, because there is a certain kind of economy and there's a certain trusting of things to, to stage managing and dialogue which a writer can easily just get away in metaphor and philosophy and blah 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 um it's one of the reasons why i am so influenced by cinema because you don't get to load again the sunset with metaphors you just have to show it and i think that kind of economy but uh, is is hard for a novelist i also think that writing a novel is such an individual personal thing i don't write by a committee you're going to write a screenplay, particularly something like that is going to happen by a committee. And um, it's, it's, so it's, it's a different thing. It's not something I'm averse to. But I also have two more novels to write. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, some left in the you know, it's been interesting. There are some writers who've sat here and said, I let it go when the mm-hmm. novel goes into movie or television production. Mm-hmm. I let it go and I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. And others who have been crushingly disappointed in yeah. what gets done. I don't think those two stories are all that separated. I think sometimes you do let it go and then you're crushingly disappointed. Yeah. Um, and it could happen. It, it, it's, it's, I haven't decided yet how much of a role I want to play. I have no problem letting go either. Um, but I am... Really, why is that that you have no problem letting go? I think because I'm just so focused on the book and I think that regardless of whatever happens to the film, the book is still the book. I like to think. Um, I, but the thing is, I also am very interested in how a different artist interprets something I do. Like, I'm not so sort of, yeah. this must be this way. I actually am fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by how, you know, how somebody else reads and interprets it. If, if, if you know, if a hundred people pick up this, wor- this book, Black Leopard, Red Wolf, that's a hundred different worlds that have probably nothing in common floating out there in some sort of great universe. And I think that's fantastic. Um, I love the Lord of the Rings films, but before Lord of the Rings, there must have been 10 million Frodo's. Now there's only Elijah Wood. (laughs) Uh, That's why I'm curious about whether for you the movie is ever more fulfilling than the book. Not yours, in general. um, Rarely, unless we're talking The Godfather or The Conformist. Um, sometimes I do think the movie is better. Rarely, but I do think sometimes the movie. And, and why better. do you think that is? 
Um, well, certainly in the case of The Godfather, there is a subtlety and ambiguity that's just not in the book. You think it would be the other way around. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. You think it would be the other way around. That would be the book that's loaded with ambiguity and the film that's too black and white. But it's the film that's loaded with it. Um, but by and large, I do, I do prefer the book to the movie. I mean, The Lover is a horrendous film. It's a great book. And, you know, Margaret Duras wrote the screenplay, so she knew it was horrible. <laughs> God, how does that happen? She knew it. That's why, she, re- that's why she, she reissued the notes to the screenplay as another novel called The North China Lover. It's brilliant. I actually like it more than The Lover. What are you reading right now? Right now, I am reading, what am I reading? I'm reading Jane Eyre. Oh, man, that is fantastic. Yeah, I'm reading why? Jane Eyre. Um, well, one, it was you in the were- airport. Um, <laughs> and I also realized I have not read Jane Eyre in years. I have not read Jane Eyre since I was a teenager. Um, and I've, re- and I've, read, I've read White Sargers to see countless times since then. And it's, of course, recont- it, it has recontextualized that novel for me. But I haven't gone back to it in a while, and I'm, I'm really excited to, to go back to it. So. Okay, so what is the experience like? Who you are now, uh, what, mm. 25, 30 years later, um, to come back to, to it? To come back to it? Well, I'm just starting it. It's, um, well, it's certainly easier to read now <laughs> than, you know, than then. It's... Um, it's interesting realizing, again, just how scandalous this novel was, you know, when it came out. People thought it was almost pornography. Um, one of the most entertaining things about reading Jane Eyre is the introduction that, that um, Charlotte Bronte wrote for the new edition. And um, what did she say? It was actually, I can't remember. She said something really, really wise, though. She was talking about the sensationalism and the accusations that the book was filthy. And I can't remember what she said, but it was a really good line. But, um, but yeah, that's I've been exciting. Reading, yeah, I don't think I've been reading anything along with Jane Eyre. Oh, I'm also reading the the the, um, the Haunting of Hill House. Why? Because I saw the miniseries, ah. and it's nothing like that. I also really love Shirley Jackson. I teach. We've always lived in a castle, um, quite a bit. Uh, but I've never read Haunting of Hill House, so I'm reading those two. I haven't either. So maybe I have to put it. Sounds it starts off pretty good. Sounds very nineteenth century, though. Yeah. <laughs> Should we open up to some questions? Yes. In the, for a few minutes, okay. Um, we have a couple of microphones out in the audience. You can raise your hands to ask it right there in the middle. Do you think of Donald Trump as sort of a modern African storyteller in terms of being a trickster? He's an unreliable narrator. Uh-huh. The story sort of loops on itself, like sometimes, and it's really hard to sort of have a sense. Well, of what's going on? I think there's a difference between a trickster and a liar. Um, you know, Tom, Thomas Mellon answered this question way better once. I was on a panel, and somebody asked him, how do you write Donald Trump? And he's like, I have no idea. He's like the world's only living, breathing flat character. And you get the sense, even in a very quiet moment with his son, he's still that way. Yeah. I also think for the trickster for the trickster to work, the trickster has to be a charmer, and I don't think he is remotely charming. I think a, a trickster is also a seducer, and these are all words that are totally foreign when we think of when we think of uh, you know we think of Trump. Uh, you know, and I also think 
a really good con, you actually sometimes appreciate the con. I was like, I see what you did. It's kind of smooth. You got me, but you're smooth. Whereas, you know, I, you know, I, have to, I have to be careful how far I talk about Trump because my citizenship papers haven't come in yet. <laughs> so, so I can, in this grace period, I can still be deported. So I'm gonna, I'm For gonna real? Be, huh? I don't real? know. I don't trust anything. Ice might be outside. <laughs> uh, Thomas Mallon writes great political fiction, yeah, doesn't he? And he a really lot of does. people don't. Yeah. I haven't read Watergate yet, but he, yeah, he does. But it's then he's be in so it. so good. What do you mean he's in it? Well, I mean, he's in Washington a lot. Oh, oh, he's, right, he's right. Son, and I think yeah. he, he understands what the crime fiction writers also understand. You have to really dig deep. Like Pelicanos. Yeah. And, yeah, exactly. Okay, question right over there. So I, I really wish this was a question about, like, literature. Mm-hmm. But what we can I, turn it. What comics are you reading these days? And have you read mm. the Flintstones latest uh, run and Snagglepuss's latest run? I have not read those because I didn't know those were co- didn't know those are comics. The, the Flintstones yeah. is possibly it is mm. it's like possibly the most socially aware comic mm. I've read in the last ten years. It's I believe got you. gay couples. It's it, got yeah. PTSD. Oh my god, Stone Age gay couples. I love it. Yeah, it's. <laughs> It's, and the Snagglepuss one is about, basically, he's a gay writer during the 50s. Oh. And they're just absolutely phenomenal. But I'm just curious what... I haven't come across those yet. I, for, me, for me, comics are literature. Um, I think sometimes we worry that if we make them too highbrow, we lose what's essential about comics. And I understand that. That's something that happened with French comics for a little bit. Um, but I, you know, to me, the greatest American novel of the past 35 years is Palomar by Gilbert Hernandez. Um, and I think Love and Rockets at any given time is the best fiction written in the country, written ever, I think. And um, Palomar, to me, is up there at 100 Years of Solitude. It's, um, it's out of print, so I think the more I shout about it, they'll bring it back in print. <laughs> but Los Bros Hernandez, um, Palomar, Duck Feet, The Death of Speedy, um, those are phenomenal comics. I, you know, I love Saga, I love Hellboy. Um, I love um, Hellblazer. Lots of comics that begin with hell. <laughs> it's the church coming out in it's you again, church, right? It's the church, I'm telling you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm a, I, I, I'm a, big, I'm a big fan of, of comics, and I do think, to me, they are, they are just, I spend so much time with them. Oh. Question right up there. Yes. Hi, I enjoyed the interview immensely, and I'm fascinated with what books, the literature you talk about. I wondered if you have read Clive Barker over the years or other. I haven't read Clive Barker in years, but I did. I remember I used to read a lot of his stuff. I think the last thing I read was maybe Imagica, maybe. Um, the, the, we're talking about um, seduction before, but really good horror, all good horror is a seduction. Someone, because they have to get you to the house on the hill in the first place. Um, and, and I talk about that sometimes in my class about, you know, genres that the, the horror has to seduce you to scare you first. Um, Dracula is scary, but he's also alluring. And I think that's something the, the torture porn people didn't understand. It's like, let me just gross you out. I was like, no, nah, that's, that's not horror. That's just an atrocity exhibition. Um, but yeah, I've, I haven't read him in a while, but I was a big, a big devotee of Clive, Clive Barker. Yeah, I think a lot of horror movies miss that too. Yeah. Like what you've just described. Some of the more recent ones like Badaduk, I think. 
are a little, a little more. So I saw Baladuk, and I was like, okay, this is cool. It's fine. It's okay. It's good. I couldn't sleep for three weeks. <laughs> I, will, I, will, I will turn off the light, and there's a shadow on the ceiling. I'm like, oh, dear God. And somebody's going to knock great. three times on my door, and I'm going to scream <laughs> so loud. That is really great. <laughs> yes. I was wondering what the creative process is when you allow the characters to take you places. Because mm-hmm. um, you're still writing it. Yeah. But how, how does that happen? Is it like when a musician hears a song come into his head? Or a you know, songwriter? Sometimes it's like that. Um, I still plot and overplot and, and write out um, what I want to happen in notebook after notebook after notebook. But I think sometimes I just do that to clear my head. Because I will write, you know copious bunches of notes and just not follow them um, or just have them in the background somewhere and sometimes I really do kind of just go okay where are we going to go today and um, because I, I, I like to think that I write books the way I read books and if, I, if it's something I've been thinking about too much I usually don't write it I've actually abandoned novels because I've thought about it too much um, I remember I was going to write this novel and I won't tell you what it is because you'll steal the idea <laughs> um, and I remember sitting down and I sat down and as I was about to hit the keyboard I went I'm already bored and, uh, and, and so I, I saved that open ended like if, if, if Tuesday I know this character is going to turn left wake up Wednesday morning and I probably have them turning right um, and, and, and so on I think that also maybe why my books are so long but I, I, you know, to me, the, it's, it's, like driving in a, it's like driving at night. And um, you're going, you're not quite sure where you're going, but you kind of have an idea. And, um, and, and that opens up for, you know, for surprise. Like, a good day for me is me going, I didn't see that coming. And if that, if, you know, if, it, to me, if, if it's, if it's, it's only going to be a surprise for the reader if it was a surprise for me. Um, when I was writing it. And that's kind of how, that's the kind of principle I stick to. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier that you someday may write, write a memoir mm-hmm. about the experience with the church. Yeah. I mean, do you, is, do you have this sense of, and I need to, I don't know, live more to be ready? I, I mean, when, when does the moment write for... That's a good question, because I really don't know, because I mean, I've been journaling since I was 16, and I have most of them. Do you? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, those are terrible. The, the... <laughs> because uh, at the time, I would journal in the style of the book I was reading, and I was reading Tom Jones a lot. <laughs> so lots of betwixt. You're going to give those to a university at some point, oh right? McAllister is going to get those? As long as they're sealed. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, I, for me, I think I'll know. Because I've known people who have waited till they're 60. And I've known people who have published, um, like, you know, 22. And right. both have been, both have come at the right time. So I think, it, I think it really depends on when I feel, I think it would be, I feel ready. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Could you speak to the sort of passage of time in this novel? Mm-hmm. As I'm reading it, it feels like there's kind of a dreaminess to it. Yeah. There's no sort of sense of it, right? Like, no. I mean, uh, me, it's funny because I actually have a calendar in my notes and I know exactly how many days pass between each thing. Um, huh. 
I needed to know that so I don't get confused writing it. I wasn't going to make you know it because it should pass in a kind of a fever dream. It's, I mean, it is, there is some linearity to it that um, there is a beginning and a middle and an end. But part of it too is Tracker is telling a lot of stories and stories about stories. And those are outside of time um, quite a bit. I also wanted people to, certainly by halfway through the book, let go of the sort of Western expectations of story that they may still have. And why wouldn't they? I have them. Um, but I uh, actually believe what, you know, Margaret Atwood said once, that was Margaret, I was A.S. Bayat, who said that sometimes novels also teach you how to read them. And I think certainly with this novel, because um, it's going in such a foreign world, I think that hopefully, eventually, the, the reader latches on on how to read it. And sort of a beginning, middle, end is not necessarily the best way, I think. Um, and the, tr- the, the trilogy itself also works that way. Because it's not a part one, part two, part three. It's three different characters telling basically the same story. So... Um, yeah, part two is also how did this, what happened to this kid? It's just that their stories won't add up at all, as witness testimonies sometimes um, tend to go. Yeah. How many of Margaret Atwood's novels have you read? Jesus, how much I read? Like, around, maybe around six. Yeah. Yeah. You excited about the Testament? Uh, well, I'm, I'm the not one, sure. Yeah. I'm not sure yet. It's it's. Um, like, do we need to know the? It's always Sequel? tricky when a novelist revisits territory, um, you know, especially for a novel that that I think one of the really, really important things about Hand, *Handmaid's Tale* is is the novel that you continue in your mind. Right. So, although television has kind of ruined that for us, if you've watched this, well, series. I haven't watched it. So, oh, really? Yeah, it's still pure and true in my head. Uh, but I mean, <laughs> and it's really, really good. But mm-hmm. it completely took over. Yeah the novel in my head about where that novel went. Yeah. I wonder if that also happened with Alias Grace. Yeah. Which may be, it's certainly one of my favorite of her novels. Right. Um, But my favorite of hers is still Cat's Eye. Ah, not Handmaid's. No. Yeah, it was always been Cat's Eye. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned that you did The Moth on this stage. Mm -hmm. I believe it was uh, shortly after Brief History came out. Yeah. Um, and lots happened since then. So <laughs> a little bit, you know. I was curious, you know, as you think back to that time, did you think, "Wow, brief history is great. I bet it's going to win the Man Booker Prize," or <laughs> you know, or you know, what's your life like now versus uh-huh. then? Well, I was just hoping my publisher would spend some money and enter the book. Um, and I also didn't think I was going to win. I really thought Hanya was going to win. Um, I mean, she was certainly the favorite to win, and I was already congratulating her. It was funny because um, this is a quick story. So at the Booker Prize, a good third of the people in the room already know who won. Hmm. Almost all the media in the room already knows. So you can usually tell who win, who won by, who, by the number of people trying to sneak over to the table and not making it seem that way. So they can take a quick picture of you when you win. So the, the, the journalist at my table already knew. And she, at one point, she just couldn't handle it anymore. She was like, have you written an acceptance speech? I'm like, nah. And she's like, I really think you should write an acceptance speech. <laughs> I was like, nah, I don't, I don't think so. I have a list of people at the time. But, and she's like, listen, I really think you should write 
<laughs> and I didn't pick up on it. And she got so, at one point, she just looked at my publisher and went, he won, you know. <laughs> and my publisher is, uh, says, well, that's what we all want, dear. <laughs> I was, <laughs> nobody was believing her. Um, so there's that. Um, how has it changed everything? You know, it's, 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 um, you know, one of the great things about living here is that people are just so unfazed. I still have my same office, the same place, and, and, and the people downstairs still won't turn off the heat. <laughs> and I'm burning up in my damn office. <laughs> um, and my students always like to say, my mom loves your book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I have a lot of normalizing um, sort of influences all around. You know, um, one of your former students is sitting right back there. Yeah. And you know what he said to me before? He there he is. Alex. He said, what, tell these guys, tell oh, Marlon God. what you said. If you embarrass me, you will die. <laughs> Hi, Marlon. Hey. Um, I'm sitting here with uh, another McAllister student, and I was, I was, we were talking a little bit about how, you know, I had a lot of classes for you throughout the years, and you would mm. bring up recurring themes or jokes such as, you, because you worked in the media industry, you knew which rappers were gay, but you weren't going to tell us. <laughs> so I was hoping some of those would come back up. Alex, no. You were like, he had 16 jokes. And I said, I guarantee you, he will not tell those 16 jokes. I'm pretty in this sure interview. it was not 16 jokes. I had like six. <laughs> <laughs> Did and he? If you took it up, yeah. And if you, you took enough classes with me, you heard the same ones over. <laughs> That's what he said. That's what I'm saying. And you All heard right. the same ones But that over didn't happen over. tonight, did it? No, I'm a little disappointed. You only get like one of them. All right, well, good. <laughs> we're plowing new territory here, I'm Alex. Like, That's you know, what it's all about. I have, a, I have a brand new dress on. I'm like, <laughs> it's all new. Okay, a couple more questions mm-hmm. because um, he's going to do a signing. Yeah. Oh, uh, hi. Uh, thank you for taking my question. I'm I'm also Jamaican. I've been I moved up here for university and I've been here ever since a couple of decades ago. One of those people. Yes, one of, one of those people. I uh, I find that as I live here in the states longer and longer, I'm simultaneously intensely proud mm-hmm. of Jamaica and love the history and you know love mm-hmm. to talk about Nanya the Maroons and these great stories of Jamaica. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, it's kind of complicated because I find I'm ideologically out of step with how I was raised right. in Jamaica. I wonder if you also living here, meditate mm. on that kind of complicated relationship you may have? And yeah. if, if so, if it factors in your writing? It, a great question. Yeah. It, not only is it complicated, there are complications on the complication. Because I used to have... Uh, one of the things I have found just in the last few trips is something that even contradicts what you just said. Where I have found that there are way more open and open-minded people in the country and way more closed-minded people in the diaspora. Um, Like, I will find, for example, way more Jamaicans who are so past me being gay in Jamaica, which shocks me. But there are still Jamaicans in the diaspora who won't talk to me. And so it's it's, I have actually found that... um, People on the rock tend to be evolving, while sometimes people here are stuck where, at the point where they left. So it's complicated, because I would never have said that two years ago. Um, so even then, so, but it's, it's still, it's, still a, it's, it's a complicated relationship. But I remember, um, so I was in, I was in, I went to Jamaica, um, 
I mean, I'm there all the time. I was there January 2016, and I met the gay the queer students association at, at University of West Indies. I'm shot there was one. And, um, and I had my It Gets Better speech ready. Um, and I was going to talk about it. And they're like, we don't want to hear that shit. They're like, do you know Beyonce? <laughs> I don't. And suddenly I felt very inadequate. <laughs> but I also realized it was a generation of queer Jamaicans who refused to give up their youth. They're like, no, I want to think about music. And I want to think about Rihanna. I don't want to think about survival or so on. And that was very bracing and very, it was shocking for me and, and wonderful. So it's complicated. At the same time, I wouldn't live in Jamaica because there are things I do absent-minded like hold a guy's hand without thinking about it. I don't want to go back to having to think about it. I don't want to go back to being deliberate in how I express myself. So it's, you're right, it's complicated and it will always be complicated. Is it in the book? It's certainly in brief history quite a bit. Um, with a character like Weeper, on one hand, I was reading, I was reading Margaret Duress when I wrote Weeper. And Margaret Duress, um, her novel, The Nart Channel, of which I mentioned before, yeah. reads like stage direction, which it actually was. And it, it hit me, a guy who's in the closet probably stage manages even a hookup. He would stage manage everything. He would know how far away people are. He would know how far away are the people who can hear me and how quiet I should be. And, 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 and it made me think again, um, you know, uh, being, being a Jamaican and being in a, in a diaspora and being away from, from safe space, how, how, you know, how uncomfortable it would always be negotiating that space. So I think that the, so that is in the book and that is very much reflective of my discomfort. But it's also the loosest and freest prose in the book, I think. And that also reflects me being sort of looser. And, and freer in ways that I sometimes feel I have to tone down when I go back. Because I like to think I was super butch. And I go to Jamaica and they're like, dude, you have to let go of some of that. You're too free. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like a hardcore jock gay. <laughs> People still think I'm straight. Like, nobody here. Like, okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We, I know we have to get to the book signing. This has mm. been so fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so Thank you much. Guys. Thank you. So much. <laughs>